0: following episode is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. For more information on how to claim CME credit or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auanet.org university.
1: This series
0: is supported by independent educational grants from Estelis, AstraZeneca, Janssen Biotech, Inc. administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, Lantheus Medical Imaging, Merck & Co., Inc., Pfizer, Inc., and Sanofi Genzyme.
1: Good afternoon, my name is Jay Rahman and I'm professor of urology at Penn State Health and chair of the AUA's Office of Education. It's my pleasure to host another episode in our educational podcast series with this specific podcast series titled Expert Exchanges in Genital Urinary Cancers. Today's specific episode is titled PARP Inhibitors in Advanced Prostate Cancer Care. And it's really my pleasure to host two thought leaders in this space, Dr. Mahu Hussein and Dr. Ganesh Raj. Dr. Hussein is a geomedical oncologist with a focus on prostate and bladder cancer. She's Professor of Medicine in the Division of Hematology and Oncology, Department of Medicine, and the Deputy Director and Leader of the Geo-Oncology Program at the Lurie Comprehensive Cancer Center at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. Dr. Raj is a urological oncologist with a focus on prostate and bladder cancer and is Professor of Urology and Pharmacology at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas. He has an active clinical program and a funded research lab, that focuses on drug development and DNA damage repair pathways in prostate cancer. So first of all, Maha and Ganesh, uh, thank you so much for taking some time uh, to join us today. Both myself as well as our membership really appreciate uh, your time and expertise in advance.
0: Thank you, Jay, it's our pleasure.
2: Thank you, Jay.
1: Um, I just wanna highlight a few of our key learning objectives for today. Uh, These will include describing the molecular basis for the use of PARP inhibitors in prostate cancer, uh, identify approved PARP inhibitors for prostate cancer in patients who may may benefit from such therapy. We're going to talk about safety and efficacy data for PARP inhibitors, indications and contraindications in patients with advanced prostate cancer, and finally, how to manage adverse events that patients may experience while taking a PARP inhibitor. So I think before we we sort of dive into where PARP inhibitors are used um, for prostate cancer and maybe even some of the data on different trials and indications, um, maybe I'd start off. Uh, maybe I'll start with you, Ganesh. Uh, talk to us a little bit about um, why would we even think about using PARP inhibitors? What's the sort of molecular basis, and and how does this uh, sort of you know mechanistically sort of fit into to how we can target or treat cancer.
2: Sure. Thanks, Jay. So PARP inhibitors take advantage of this fundamental issue in a cancer cell called synthetic lethality. So what is that? So that means that a cancer cell, because it has a mutation in one pathway, is very dependent on another pathway. And by and that's what PARP inhibitors do, is target the pathway the cancer cells become very dependent on. And that process is called synthetic lethality, or manufactured lethality, in on that pathway. So, what happened? The, the the primary pathway that is affected are the BRCA mutations, the and and DNA damage repair mutations in prostate cancer. So, when you have a DNA damage in a cancer cell, normally it's repaired through multiple pathways. One of them is the pathway that is dependent. On, on BRCA. When you mutate that pathway, uh, when you mutate a BRCA gene, that pathway is lost and it becomes exquisitely dependent on another pathway that the PARP inhibitors are then able to target and block. And you're able to block the, uh, the dependent pathway, the new dependency of a cancer cell and the cancer cell cannot survive and dies. And therein lies the molecular basis of using PARP inhibitors in very select patients who have a, uh, have a DNA damage repair defect.
1: So Ganesh, I'm going to sort of sort of the next step after that. So you you've clearly highlighted for us mechanistically how PARP inhibitors work. What are the and this is for either Mahar or Ganesh, but um, what should we be ordering or how do we recognize that a tumor or a patient has such a defect and therefore may be an adequate or a candidate for PARP inhibition? What, what, what are sort of the steps that need to occur if you have a patient in the office with advanced prostate cancer to know whether this can be potentially part of your armamentarium?
2: Well, if I may start for that, and then I'm sure Maha can talk more about the advanced prostate cancers. So let's start with patients with clinically localized prostate cancer the bread and butter uh, patient that we we as urologists see a lot more of them are coming to me now with a family history of of prostate cancer of metastatic prostate cancer breast cancer pancreatic cancer or ovarian cancer Mm -hmm. Those four cancers are are somehow higher risk of a man with prostate cancer having a DNA damage repair defect. So one of the things we do is we, we talk to those, uh, well, a lot of those patients will come in already with either a family history of a DNA damage repair defect, or like a BRCA mutation or others, and then they will come to you and either they have had, also have had genetic testing done because their family was entirely genetically tested. And they will come to you and say, I have, a, I have prostate cancer diagnosis. With the BRCA mutation, what do I do about this? So that's a patient who you will see now more and more in your clinical practice with clinically localized prostate cancer coming with that diagnosis. So more patients at the outset are diagnosed with clinically localized prostate cancer. Now, I'm sure Maha can tell us a lot more about the advanced setting. That's what I'm starting off with clinically.
0: And I think I fully agree with Ganesh. I think there's the issue of the family history. Uh, definitely is a factor and patients should be tested. And I fully agree they have to be counseled and different places have genetic counselors so they can meet with them first. But if you feel that, you know, the physician feels comfortable, I think we should be capable of doing that. The one thing I just want to clarify that um, what we know about cancer is based on the knowledge of the last, say, 10, 15 years, There's a lot we still don't know. And there are many patients who get tested for germline. And despite a very, very intensive family history of Uh, highly suspicious cancers, their genes are negative. So when it comes to counseling, I think that's going to be important to say, just because you don't have the BRCA gene or, uh, you know, the uh, DNA, um, uh, you know, uh, repair defective genes type thing, that does not mean there's no risk for prostate cancer for your blood relatives and things like that. So definitely. I think we've entered the era definitely in the metastatic hormone sensitive space. And I would argue definitely in the frontline and for sure, in second line and beyond, in terms of counseling patients regarding um, the essentially uh, the genomic testing of the tissue, and uh, certainly if tissue is not available, then I recommend. Um, uh, essentially doing liquid biomarker testing so the CTDNA and these are right now FDA approved and uh, in my experience we haven't had any like insurance difficulties with doing it as long as it's carefully documented um, in there and definitely I would say that is important because um, the the data goes back to the stand-up to cancer effort where essentially when, the tumors, and these were frontline metastatic uh, castration resistant prostate cancer patients that had their tumors tested. Somewhere around 20% of these patients had, in fact, had DNA repair pathway aberrations. And so I think that one in five will, for sure. Uh, and things may, the, the rate may increase over time potentially. But definitely, I would say it's important to prepare because it does take a while. By the time to get the tissue and get it sent or collect the blood and send it, it's going to take a few weeks to get the results. So it would be good to do it ahead of time in preparation.
2: And and Jay, just to build on that, I mean, I uh, I think those are important numbers to keep for a urologist to keep in mind. The prevalence of germline DNA damage repair defects. So germline is what you inherit is probably in the order of somewhere between 1 to 5%. So those would be the numbers, especially for BRCA2, especially for the most common ones we know is somewhere in the one to 5%. But in the therapy resistant metastatic castrate resistant prostate cancer, it's close to 20%. So mm. you're talking about a small number of germline and then a bigger number of patients with uh, what we call acquired or somatic or and plus germline that's equals 20%. So. It's 1% one one to 5% here, 20 to 25% there.
0: And then to highlight, actually, um, the fact that I f- fully agree with Ganesh, that is from the perspective of the overall population. Where we sit in medical onco- as medical oncologists, we tend to see the bad disease by default. And so um, if one goes by the data from the different published data, the range was one to five, but uh, in the stand-up to cancer it was almost up to ten percent. Hmm. There were pathogenic germline findings. Uh, and again, part of it is because the uh, stand-up to cancer was a self-selected group of bad aggressive disease because they were already castration resistant when they got seen.
1: So give our listeners, so we're going to obviously be spending a lot of time talking about PARP inhibition and prostate cancer, but just to, to take a step back, maybe um, give our listeners a little bit of a sense of what other disease states, cancer disease states, is PARP inhibition currently used in? And and it may just be helpful to know that, you know, you only know what you know, right? So urologists and urologic practitioners look at the urologic diseases, but maybe give me a bit of a sense of Um, Where else is this being used? What other diseases, what other malignancies?
0: Oh, so, I mean, it began, the first story began actually in ovarian cancer. And uh, in fact, um, there is a very nice paper, uh, if the audience is interested, that was um, published in JCO Precision Oncology in 2021, where um, uh, Mark Rubin um, was a senior author and his team, they basically reported the history of PARP uh, start. And the research actually started literally in the early 60s overall. But where the, the implementation occurred is ovarian cancer and breast cancer, and then more recently pancreatic cancer and, of course, prostate cancer.
1: So let's talk now about a little bit more about prostate cancer and, and maybe let's start with, um, and Ganesh, I think you started talking about this a little bit or maybe about you did as well, but can you uh, give the listeners a sense of where should PARP inhibition, or at least now, and that may change over time and things seem to always move earlier into the disease paradigm. But right now, if you look at say NCCN guidelines or, or where does PARP inhibition play into patient care and maybe- also what are the trials that help us inform that that that's where they should be or, or they should be used in clinical practice
2: well you know a lot of the I, i'm we're fortunate to have maha here because she was involved in parp inhibition from a in prostate cancer for a long time including the initial veliparib study and and so on so you know the the only thing I can add to this, and she so she can tell you a lot more about this. But one of the key things I can tell you more than anything else is is PARP inhibition is currently FDA approved and indicated for patients with metastatic castrate resistant prostate cancer. Um, and so it is uh, it uh, and with a BRCA mutation with a DNA damage repair mutation. So it has to have so two parts to it. One, they have to be metastatic, castrate resistant, and two, they must have a uh, must have a somatic biopsy proven or uh, uh, or through um, or through cell free DNA or some other method some evidence of a, of a mutation in a DNA damage repair defect. So th- that is the primary indication as it exists. Um, but Maha can tell you a lot more about each one of those trials and. Uh, and uh, and what those what those trials mean.
0: Sure, absolutely. I would be more than happy to. So uh, I just want to reiterate what Ganesh mentioned. The interest in actually looking at PARP and prostate cancer literally began over 10 years ago, easily. I want to say from the late 2000s to early 20, around 2010 and so. And basically, the the data was was becoming more and more available looking at the mediation of DNA response uh, in the setting of alkylators. So essentially, you're creating that artificial synthetic lethality with the DNA damage and uh, with the alkylators. And then... Uh, of course, emerging data regarding the BRCA-BRCA-like genes and so on, and basically work from uh, Karen Knudsen and her team actually uh, also elaborated even more about um, how AR uh, and the PARP pathway interact, and so that you get um, uh, the AR, there's mediated prostate cancer cellular proliferation, where you find is PARP one interacts with the with the AR uh, with the Mgen signaling cascade, and uh, castration resistant tumors actually exhibited higher rate of PARP one hmm. activity. And so um, this is actually when uh, when Ganesh was referring to veliparib. In fact, that's what started the first trial that I did in combination to try to combine without a preselection, combine uh, patients um, uh, uh, looking at adding abiraterone uh, uh, and. Um, Um, and Voliparib, and this was part of the Stand Up to Cancer, and what was fascinating actually um, the, the patients who had enough metastatic, uh, adequate metastatic disease tissue, we had them, um, sequenced and looked at responses. And surprisingly was the fact that the patients who had the DNA repair defects seemed to respond better irrespective of whether they were out on Abby or Abby plus veliparib, which was kind of odd there. Now, one of the issues when people ask me, why did veliparib not work is partly because I don't think all PARP inhibitors are equal. And in fact, we did a review on the subject, which I'm happy to provide the reference for um, uh, separately um, to you all uh, and to the audience, is that there's all kinds of different uh, DNA repair genes and there are different agents and not all are equal in that regard. And so, um, yeah, so the work in prostate cancer really dates back to that. Now, where there is the FDA indication at this point, it's with two drugs, um, alaparib and rucaparib. And with the Recaparib, it's stri- it's uh, strictly approved in the context of um, patients who have uh, the BRCA one and two, uh, basically. Uh, so essentially, the BRCA germline or somatic, and elaparib was uh, approved in a the fourth in a fourteen gene panel, basically. So the usual suspects type genes, and clearly BRCA one two ATM and. Uh, all of the, uh, all of the rest of them. The one thing I want to point out uh, is that, and we published on this, is that um, it's important to counsel the patients. Just because somebody has the BRCA doesn't mean there's a guarantee 100% they're going to respond. That's one thing. The second thing is technically speaking right now, um, the approval is technically in the second-line castration-resistant disease, and there are um, more than happy. We can go over different trials that are happening, even in the hormone-sensitive space, high-risk, local relapse-type situation, uh, and so on. And so, I think there's a lot of work that we that's going on, and I'm hoping that within the next few years, we will we will hear much more about it.
2: Yeah, maybe uh, you could. Oh, sorry, go. Ahead. Were you going to say oh, something? Okay, I was just going to say that you know one of the things in. In urology, with all with that tendency to move everything up front, there is also this huge impetus to move all these drugs further and earlier in the course of disease. One of the one of the things that uh, you might want to consider is is also think about in the clinically localized disease, especially when a patient comes in with a known BRCA germline mutation. Should you give that patient a high uh, radiation or surgery? Or what should be the first treatment, or should you incorporate um, uh, uh, a, a PARP inhibitor? And the only way to do that is in the context of a clinical trial. But that—that that is where the field as a whole is moving. So, kind of skating to where the puck is going. Um, that's sort of, sort of a futuristic view of the world, rather than just thinking about the metastatic CRPC.
0: Yeah, fully agree. And I think this is where I would say we need the data because not all diseases are equal. And certainly extrapolating from the castration resistance space is one story. We've lived the story of different drugs that got moved up front and they did not work as well. So I do think clearly uh, when there is the opportunity for patients to be offered clinical trials, that would be very, very optimal.
1: So I think, I think you both hit on this point that we've seen in the, in the landscape of prostate cancer, right, that a lot of the therapies that are currently being used earlier and earlier initially started in the castrate resistance space and now have moved to the hormone-sensitive space. And Maha, you mentioned this a little bit, but maybe just give our listeners a little bit of a sense of maybe some of the trials, either Maha or Ganesh, some of the trials that are out there that are, that are now incorporating uh, PARP inhibitors maybe earlier, in the treatment paradigm? And, and, you know, when, when we think such trials ballpark would accrue to like, when would we start getting some data on, on some of the use earlier in the treatment setting?
0: So uh, for those who might have um, attended ASCO GU this year, uh, there were two clinical trials that were presented. Um, uh, one is um PROPEL trial, which was evaluating olaparib, um, uh in the, again, in the frontline castration resistant disease. Uh, uh, so it's ABI plus minus elaparib, so placebo versus elaparib, And then the other trial was the magnitude trial. And um, again, the control was um, abiraterone. And there was somewhat of a mixed outcomes uh, in some way uh, with, the, with the trials. Um, and that, uh, and then it's. It, I think part of the problem too is driven by the uh, design issue. So the magnitude trial was, um, I would argue, better designed, and that it was an a priori stratified and then randomized um, trial, uh, looking at uh, the, the value of um, abiraterone. Um, with uh, niraparib or abiraterone plus placebo in the context of frontline castration-resistant prostate cancer. And that trial basically showed uh, there was potential benefit, that there was benefit in the patients with the uh, mutations um, uh, as opposed to those who had the um, intact um, okay. uh, tumors. The uh, other trial was the actual PROPEL trial and the PROPEL trial um, in that regard was not as I would say optimally designed in my humble opinion. Um, and uh, the reason I say that it basically took all comers, randomized them and then basically collected samples and tested and you know on patients but not it wasn't a priori stratified. And as you can imagine for those of everybody including us in the clinic when we test samples, there's a lot of sometimes, um, issues with the sample resulting uh, there or not good quality or all kinds of stuff. So that might kind of give a sense that there could have been sort of indirect misassignment, so to speak, of the patients in the different arms. The bottom line is this, is the combo is better than um, the single agent. And again, I would say the the signal from the um, niraparib is more clear where the benefit is Propel it, the claims is that it's across the spectrum, mm-hmm. um, and so uh, my understanding that um, the data is before the FDA, as I hear. I don't know what the what the verdict is going to be from from the FDA on the subject. Um, so it will be will have to be you know staying tuned. When all is said and done, again, I think at the end of the day, in making decisions for a patient, one has to go by the data appropriateness for that individual patient risk, benefit, drug interaction, and multiple other
2: factors. And Jay, kind of building on that, I mean, right now we have two FDA-approved PARP inhibitors for prostate. We have Olaparib and we have Rucaparib. There are two other ones that are in trials, the niraparib and talazoparib, and those are both in trials. If you look at the number of trials on clinicaltrials.gov for prostate cancer, for PARP inhibitors in prostate cancer, there are more than 30 trials. And most of them are in the advanced metastatic castrate-resistant setting, either as monotherapy or in combination. The trials that, there are also um, a trial that hasn't accrued yet, but it's the neoadjuvant setting for high risk, clinically localized, unfavorable parameters for Mm -hmm. those patients trying to use a PARP inhibitor in the neoadjuvant setting. Again, looking for either P0 or near P0 rate in combination with an anti-androgenic agent.
0: And of course, there's all kinds of combination trials with immune therapy, with uh, radium, actually, with lutetium, PSMA, um, uh, PET, uh, you know, uh, uh, therapy with uh, all kinds of different um, uh, drugs. So I do think it's really exciting time. And I do think... um, I don't think everything is going to be positive, but I do think certain areas will likely be positive. And that I think will make a huge difference. And when it comes to the hormone sensitive space, exactly as Ganesh pointed out, um, the issue I think is going to be for the early stage, high risk diseases, one thing, because I would imagine you're not going to treat them forever. The issue is going to be in the setting of the hormone sensitive relapsed or metastatic hormone sensitive schools. And the issue comes up, um, giving these drugs, there's one thing about giving AR inhibitors lifelong. How do you go about giving a PARP inhibitor and the issues mm-hmm. of downstream bone marrow issues and things like that? So I think there's a lot of questions that we need to address.
1: So practically speaking, just when, when you look at these drugs in administration, um, how are these given? And and is there, a, is there like a dose escalation um, uh, sort of uh, process? We I mean, just really practically... How do you give PARP inhibitors? Is it a fixed dose? Do you escalate the dose? And then what's sort of your criteria for monitoring treatment effect?
0: So, the dosing is essentially for the approved indications, the dosing is based on what the FDA approval is. Having said that, uh, there are times where if you're uncomfortable about giving somebody because you're worried about, you know, they've seen all kinds of chemo before and there is issues. You can always start at what I call a minus one dose level, depending on which drug one is going to go with. But I would say in the vast majority of times, honestly, more than 95% of times, one is able to start with the full dose and then um, adjust dosing based on the patient's tolerance. In general, I have to say for properly selected patients, the toxicities uh, are not as uh, you know they're they're I'm not going to say mild but they're really not something that's prohibitive and definitely I would say most of my patients are at full dose at this point and many of them actually uh, are some are uh, on clinical trials, some are not, but uh, some of them have been on treatment without exaggeration for two to three years. And this, these are the classic, what I call exceptional responders, mm-hmm. the bracket two patients.
2: Uh, just, just to build on that, just uh, if these are orally administered. Also, don't have any food restrictions. For for us, uh, used to giving Abi and Enzalutamide. Uh, these are orally administered, usually once or twice a day, usually twice a day, and then uh, no food restrictions and uh, and uh, no, no need for concomitant steroids. Yeah. So,
1: you know, I, I think what, you know, I, I would hazard a guess that at this present time, most urologists, for example, may not be prescribing PARP inhibitors, but I think that most urologists Probably have patients that they share with their medical oncology colleagues, right? They've probably passed through the disease spectrum. At one point, they were localized, and now they've moved on. So, I think what what urologists and urologic practitioners will will sort of getting will see a lot is the the adverse effects, the side effects, right? Patients are calling in, um, and and uh, they have X, Y, or Z side effect from therapy. So, maybe can you both talk to me a little bit about? What are the side effects of the PARP inhibitors? What do people need to be cognizant of when, I don't know, the phone call comes in or laboratory testing needs to be done? And, and how do you manage these side effects uh, when they occur? Maybe that's for Maha, just in your
2: practice. Can I just say one thing before Maha says? The only thing I remember as a, as a urologist, of when a patient calls, with one of these, the most common one that we've encountered is anemia. And my next call to them is called the medical oncologist. uh,
0: yes you guys do a good job dumping on us what can i say (laughs) so i fully agree i think um if one goes by let's say the alaparib, just because that's the broader indication um the most common high grade adverse event or any grade adverse event in total was actually anemia so i fully agree with ganesh And uh, clearly, I think the anemia is multifactorial. One is the fact that a lot of times where these drugs are given are pretty much in patients who have seen prior chemotherapy and so on. So their bone marrow is already kind of affected. And uh, on top of it, of course, there is the myelosuppression that can occur. So I would say based on the... The profound trial when we saw it, uh, it was surprisingly that this is again an international trial, and uh, the treatment was incredibly very well tolerated by the majority of the patients with no major issues there, but anemia was the most common. And I think the issue is going to boil down to uh, for the physicians to definitely. Connect with the medical oncologist just because this is part of what we handle in general. Another thing that I've seen with patients and certainly um, uh, reported in the trials that we have done was really the nausea and fatigue. And um, some patients kind of have, um, you know, um, uh, some other th- symptoms that are kind of. Not specifically you what you might would expect, like you know, um, aches and pains and things like that. And some of these things maybe a function of the fact is the cancer is just when a patient is on a trial and um, they have a symptom their physicians are going to, you know, basically potentially say potentially related kind of thing. But I would say the marrow suppression is the biggest issue. The fatigue is another thing. And this is where I would say judgment has to be used in terms of management. So the potential would be if things are like, say, severe anemia is one thing, but a mild anemia, maybe there is a room to continue. And then if the patient can qualify for transfusion, go ahead with it, with the hope that as you do the treatment, if somehow the drug works well, the marrow may recover. And then, um, you know, you won't need to reduce the dose. The flip side would be is obviously if there's concern, definitely safety trumps everything. And so if there's any concern, one can go down and then give it some time and then potentially go back up there. But I would say this is the kind of these drugs, even though they are pills, they're not, you know, Abratron, uh and so or, or Enzalutamide. So I would say definitely partnering with your medical oncologist uh, is going to be critical.
2: Could I ask a question? The fatigue level that you see with these drugs, would you say is as profound as say uh, the what what you see with Enzalutamide or any of the other drugs?
0: Actually, no. Surprisingly, uh, I would say that. Uh, with Enza, you feel patients have a fair amount of fatigue. Certainly when uh, we give chemo, you know, in the first couple of weeks or 10 days, the patients kind of feel like really um, weak. Uh, this is not that way. And I would say that... Um, as I said, I've had several patients. And again, these are the exceptional responders. So you could look at it from that perspective. One patient actually has been on it for four years. Another one is uh, on it for two years almost now. Surprisingly, no, no anemia, not requiring transfusions, no issues with platelets or anything else. So again, there is all of these spectrum of things, but obviously I would definitely say these are unusual, more, you know, kind of exceptional type responders. I would say for your average patient, especially when these drugs are given in second, third, fourth line type situation, one needs to be prepared for potential, uh, you know, adverse events.
1: So, Ganesh, when you started us off, you talked to us a little bit about the mechanisms of PARP inhibition, right? You know, how do PARP inhibitors work? So I'm going to maybe flip the corollary to you now, which is... um, what are are sort of the 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 mechanisms of resistance? Uh, I mean, what what happens? It seems like this is an elegant therapy. It's targeted, right? It's it's far more targeted than just global androgen suppression. But but what's the mechanism of resistance? And and I don't know. Is there any data on uh, even in a in a in a basic science model? Like how often does that occur?
2: Uh- resistance is almost always the case right like except for the exceptional responders you almost always have the resistance and resistance actually if you think about it they're almost always reversion mutations so what's a reversion mutation so if you have a point mutation in the BRCA gene then you get another gene another mutation that restores the function of that gene so what it does is remember the BRCA gene basically blocked one pathway that mutation in the BRCA gene blocked one pathway the reversion mutation restores that pathway, so that that pathway for DNA damage repair, the PARP inhibition can block another pathway, but the original pathway that the BRCA gene was was blocking is unblocked because the gene became reverted, and now there is a pathway for the original uh, DNA damage repair to happen, and it's almost like the, your PARP inhibitor loses activity. Hmm. It's it's the effect of giving. It's effectively like giving a PARP inhibitor to somebody without a BRCA mutation. Yep,
0: And it just tells you why humans, humanity, survived millions of years. It's that adaptation for sure.
1: And then, Maha, my, my uh, related question to Ganesh is um, we talked about indications, right? We talked about NCCA guidelines. What are the indications now? What are the indications in the future? Um, what are the contraindications? Who who really can't get a PARP in inhib- here? I mean, are there specific persons that can't? Um, and 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 who are those persons?
0: Well, I would say for a general statement, um, anyone who you think you're gonna harm when you're looking at them and trying to decide to give them treatment definitely should not be done anytime you're nervous about giving it. Having said that, I would say patients who have, there are times where we see patients who have, um, let's say, um, uh, uh, leukemia, and uh, they're already, uh, in fact, I have few of them. Uh, uh, patients and the issue comes up is they already have you know bone marrow issues they already have the leukemia and are you going to make things worse so there's going to be some potential cases where you feel you know or or mds or something like that where you're going to have to figure out and honestly none of us i believe have any experience nor that i've seen any reported data at this point just because the trials pretty much excluded these types of patients
1: So maybe in the last uh, two, three minutes here, I'll ask you each maybe, I'll start with Ganesh, sort of take home uh, message for our listeners. I mean, what, what should they walk away from in your perspective just regarding PARP inhibition and advanced prostate cancer? And I'll start with you and then I'll go to Maha with her parting thoughts.
2: Yeah, no, that's great. So I think one of the key things, Jay, is that we are going to see more and more patients with the DNA damage repair mutation, with a BRCA mutation, with an ATM mutation showing up To your practice, I mean whether they, whether whether um, and either to think about whether uh, whether that increases their risk of prostate cancer, whether you are going to survey them more actively with PSAs, set them up for biopsies more often. This is pre-diagnosis. You're going to see more patients. Second, you're going to see more patients with prostate cancer who who already know they have a BRCA mutation. How you treat them is also going to be important knowing fully well they have more aggressive disease higher risk of recurrence higher risk of metastasis higher risk of long term um, in the in the unbi- in sort of a smaller cohort of patients uh, that's what the data tells us so far they have more aggressive cancers so given that how do you treat that um, and then and then the and then the same the next part of it is in the advanced setting after, once you become castrate resistant, if you start sequencing your patients, the metastatic sites, uh, you will start finding a lot more of these BRCA mutations. Hmm. Then you call in your friendly medical oncologist, (laughs) Hamaa, for further further, uh, uh, support.
0: No, send them to your local oncologist. (laughs) Don't (laughs) send them to me. So um, one thing, Jay, I wanted to mention, for your previous question about who should not get it or whatever i do think that a lot of these drugs in, including like when we give Enza or abby or whatever there is issues of drug drug interaction with medications that the patients are on so i do think that it's going to be very critical for the managing physician to consult with their pharmacist regarding the potential drug interactions, where the, you know, whatever the patient is on, because obviously that can create a major issue in terms of side effects, and um, mm-hmm. that's gonna be important. Um, uh, so th- so that would be the answer for the previous one. Um, uh, I think that uh, we've entered the era of precision medicine and prostate cancer. I do think that the field is evolving quite rapidly. And I think at the end of the day, the goal is not to replace treatment. The goal is to give the patient the best chance of response and maximizing their their chance to live longer. And so one thing that I have seen sometimes where people kind of say, well, you're better off with this as opposed to getting chemo or something like that. The reality of it is these, all of these tools are on the table to offer patients. And depending on the timeline, the comorbidities, the cost factor, insurance coverage, um, patients' abilities and things like that, All of these things ought to be taken into consideration to try to maximize the chance for the patient to respond. None of these treatments are curative at this point in the setting we're dealing with. And so I do think that has to be sort of taken into consideration when a decision is made for a patient.
1: That's great. Uh, Very well said. Uh, Well, I want to, Maha, Ganesh, I I really want to thank you both. Um, I think you did a really absolute fantastic job summarizing, um, you know, I think a space that most urologic practitioners probably feel a little bit uncomfortable in is when you get to this advanced prostate cancer realm and especially sort of new targeted therapies like this. But I really want to, first of all, thank you both very much for your time and your thoughtfulness.
0: Thank you very much. Absolutely. It takes a team, my dear, so for sure. (laughs) And that's what's important.
1: Uh, And to our audience, thank you very much for joining us. For more information, please visit us at auanet.org slash university. Uh, Maha Ganesh, I hope you both have a very uh, happy and safe holiday with your your families.
0: Thank you very much. You too. Bye-bye.